Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa Programme. On this episode, we'll be exploring the Angolan and Mozambican peace processes in the year of their 20th and 30th anniversaries, respectively. In order to provide a holistic assessment on the topic of peace and conflict mediation, this episode is split into two distinct parts, which provide different lenses to explore these issues one historical and one modern day. First, I'll be speaking to Dr. Alex Weins, director of the Africa Programme, who provide a historic overview on the two peace processes, providing you with the necessary understanding of how peace was come to in these nations and what lessons can be learned. In the second part, I'll discuss recent UN-led conflict mediation efforts in Mozambique with Neha Sangrachka, a peace-building and conflict mediation specialist who currently serves as a senior advisor to the Mozambique peace process. We will explore her team's efforts to sustain peace in Mozambique, the importance of inclusion in this type of process, and the unique nature of conflict mediation in Africa. I hope you enjoy listening. Dr. Alex Fiennes has led the Africa program at Chatham House since 2002 and became Managing Director for Risk, Ethics and Resilience at Chatham House in 2019. Previously, he held roles at Chatham House as a Director for Regional Studies and International Security and Director for Area Studies and International Law. He chaired the UN panel of experts on Côte d'Ivoire from 2005 to 2007 and was a member of the UN panel of experts on Liberia from 2001 to 2003. He was also a member of the Commonwealth Observer Group to Mozambique in 2019 and Ghana in 2016, and a UN election officer in Mozambique in 1994 and in Gola in 1992. Hi Alex, welcome to Africa Aware. Hello, good to be back. Now, in 2022, this year, we find the 30th and 20th anniversaries of the end of the Mozambican and Angolan civil wars respectively. Can you provide our listeners with an overview of how these incredibly protracted conflicts came to an end? Well, both these civil wars were very vicious and they were drawn to a conclusion primarily by the end of the Cold War and its impact, uh, including on the ending of apartheid in in Southern Africa. Uh, And so, yes, in October 1992, there was a general peace accord that was signed in Rome, Italy, ending the Mozambican Civil War. There'd been several years of negotiation previously, led by churches, basically, by the uh, San Isidio community, which was a Catholic lay community, the Catholic Bishop of Beira, uh, Jaime Gonzalves, and a couple of Italian politicians were involved too. So they kind of mediated that process with support on the side. And the guns basically fell silent. The war ended in, in Mozambique. Likewise, a year earlier, there had been something called the Bises Accords in Angola signed, which uh, paved the way, supposedly, for the end of the Angolan Civil War. It was a more complicated process because you had Cuban troops and other things involved in in Angola as part of the kind of Cold War uh, logic that was occurring at that time. Unfortunately, In uh, 1992, the elections that happened in September, the country went back to war. And so the Angolan end of conflict is much more recent. It's as you say, it's only 20 years ago this year. Finally, with the death of the leader of the rebel organization that was contesting power, Jonas Savimbi of UNITA, the war basically ended 
and there was something called the Luena Memorandum of Understanding that was agreed in April 2002, overseen or by observing countries at the time. So that's Russia and the United States and Portugal, the Troika, but also the UN's uh, Special Advisor for Africa and Under Secretary General Ibrahim Gambari, who is today the Chief of Staff of the Nigerian President. And I just actually spoken to him about his memory of that particular moment in time. So, of course, history begins to affect the present day. And actually, to, to follow on from that point I've just said, what do you see as the learning from those events 30 and 20 years ago? Well, each conflict was different. So the end of the Mozambican Civil War in October 1992 was basically a mutual hurting stalemate. That's an academic term. So both the government and the rebels, Renamo, were hurting, but they couldn't have a definitive knockout blow. You overlap that with a drought and various other things, as I've mentioned, the end of the Cold War. And so they both were tired, exhausted, and wanted an accommodation. And so they signed an agreement. In Angola, basically, UNITA rejected, the rebel movement rejected election results in uh, 1992, returned to war, and then tilted back at conflict with the government on a couple of occasions, only in the end being resolved by the death of the UNITA leader in military action. As soon as that had happened, the war ended. And so Angola is one of those rare situations where the leader is killed and then the war, the conflict ends. Maybe Sri Lanka, if you would think about the Tamil Tigers, might be another example, but there aren't many historically you know, equivalents, I think. It's much more likely to have a mutually hurting stalemate. And so the United Nations that was involved in both countries, well, the UN really beefed up its presence after the 92 Rome General Peace Accord, uh, assuming that one of the mistakes in Angola had been that it had a very small presence. And another thing that the UN had thought that might be a lesson was that winner post past the post elections were not a good thing. That they didn't ever achieve in the end. And there was an election uh, supervised by the UN in 1994 in Mozambique that passed pretty reasonably. I was there as an election observer. And so uh, those elections were basically free and fair. They were probably one of the more, most credible elections in, in, in Mozambican modern history. And then you have an open-ended process, basically, which is of how do you demobilize and reintegrate the ex-combatants, both those on the government side that didn't want to become part of a joint army, and those from the rebels, in Mozambique's case, Renamo. And so the original plan was 30,000 as a joint army, but actually about half of that number didn't want to get involved any further in the military business. And so in the end, you had an army about 13,000 strong that came out of that process. And the idea was then that gradually over time, the ex-combatants of Renama would integrate, they'd settle down with their families, and peace would be restored in Mozambique. But what we now see some 20 years on or 30 years in the, in the Mozambique case is that uh, these processes are open-ended and that they change over time. And so the reality is that in Mozambique in 2013, 
the country then returned to some limited targeted armed conflict and a new new smaller peace process needed to to begin drawing on lessons learned uh, from the mistakes of the Rome process that had occurred some 20 years previously. And to follow up on that point that you just made regarding the reintegration of combatants into society, how did peace and reconciliation work in these contexts? Well, both Angola and in Mozambique, that they followed a similar pathway, which is the number one issue that everybody agreed on, all the combatants, was that there should be impunity. There should be no victors or vanquished. There should be amnesty. And so this is very different from, for example, South Africa, where you had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and you had that in some other post-conflict situations. And so where there has been reconciliation or accountability for past uh, abuses uh, during the conflict, it's been done at a local level through faith groups uh, and neo-traditional ceremonies, but it's never been formalized. And some people say that's been one of the reasons for the repeat of violence in Mozambique. I'm not so sure. I actually think that the local processes work pretty well and that this is really about politics. And so unless you really sorted out the politics, whether you had a formal process or an informal one, they didn't make a much much of a material difference. The reality, I think, is that it would have been much harder to have reached an agreement in October 1992 if both sides felt that they would be prosecuted for what had occurred previously. And similarly, although it was a military solution in Angola, in fact, the elite reintegration of UNITA military worked pretty well. They were integrated into the joint military, the forces Amadas Angolanos, and they were given jobs and predictable pensions. And people have complained that the Angolan armed forces are very bloated and very large for now 20 years. But the reality is that this was all about peace building, in fact, and, and ensuring that the significant part of the UNITA uh, military was actually being um, subsidized or employed and therefore was, was not a risk. And so I think some of the observers of the Angolan conflict forget that that's why you have one of the largest standing armies in Africa, in Angola, because it's actually part of a peace process. It's not just that Angola wants a big army and to, to kind of show off on the numbers game. And I think to end, I want to pick up a word that you've just said, which is process. Peace isn't static. It isn't an event. The ending of these civil wars didn't lead to peace constantly, as you just mentioned. What can be learned about the peace building process and how it is dynamic from these two conflicts and their end and, the, of course, the 20 and 30 years that have followed? So Angola and Mozambique are similar in that they are former Portuguese colonies. They speak Portuguese. They uh, had, have national liberation movement governments in power. But that's where the similarity kind of ends. They are different processes that have had different results. And one had an attempt at compromise after the Lusaka agreement. There was a government, a national unity. It failed. And the country went back to war and a military solution was sought. In Mozambique, it's been a process of elite bargaining between Renamo and Frelimo. Uh, and since the return of targeted armed conflict in 2013, a new process that learnt from the mistakes 
as well as some of the successes of the Rome process, but it involved new people, new ideas of how to navigate in a situation which was changing. You can't assume that 20, 25 years on, that the same issues will be the same. And I think that's why we're now coming to a watershed moment in Mozambique, where finally the, the conflict that ended officially 30 years ago will be put to bed, which is that there is a proposal that Runamo ex-combatants who had been re-engaged in conflict from 2013 will be eligible for state pension. If that's the case, I don't think that they will return to conflict. They're already middle-aged. Not only that, but Mozambique will have shown leadership because it will be, in my knowledge, the first country in the world where an opposing force is actually made eligible for a kind of state benefit. And what these Mozambicans want is dependable and predictable pensions. They basically want to retire with a degree of dignity. And so that's what peace building in the end is about, which is about building peace, ending conflict, and encouraging development. Thank you so much for that overview, Alex. It's been really interesting to hear your insights, and I hope to welcome you back soon. Thank you for having me. Neha Sangrachka is a negotiator, mediation advisor and author with a track record of definitive and positive outcomes in high-stakes negotiations. She has more than 14 years of experience in conflict prevention, resolution and mediation, including working for Kofi Annan in Kenya on the 2007 electoral crisis, dialogue and reform process, which took place in Kenya, and most recently with the UN Secretary-General's personal envoy for Mozambique as a mediator on the definitive Mozambican peace accord. Neha has in-depth knowledge of working with a variety of multilateral platforms, including the African Union, United Nations, European Union, and the HD Centre, on a range of issues such as electoral processes, conflict prevention, mediation, peacebuilding, and governance. She has a strong background in legal and international affairs and has advised senior officials and governments on policy and political strategy in highly politically sensitive and complex environments. Hi Neha, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Yusuf. It's, uh, it's an honour to be invited. Okay, and to begin, as someone who was so deeply involved in the peace process in Mozambique most recently, why was that peace process so unique compared to other processes you've worked on? And why do you believe this peace will last? I think I'd like to compare the current process with the two processes already happening in Mozambique. The first one was a national process, and the second one was a heavily internationalized process with almost 13 mediators, popularly known as the Avenida process. I think the country was so tired of coming off the back of uh, this one that there was almost, by the time we got started, there was almost no appetite, uh, not only for any sort of dialogue or peace uh, process, but definitely nothing international. So we actually had nothing to begin with. And in hindsight, that was incredibly positive because we started from scratch. We started at the beginning and we put Mozambique and its needs at the heart of uh, the process we were uh, about to embark upon. You know, traditional peace processes are often so risk averse and fear of failure often sees repetition of previous models. Uh, we see this a lot. 
and in this case, because we had we had nothing to work with, we started off with their interests uh, in mind and tried to um, insulate the process uh, and give space for the two leaders uh, to directly interact. This took a while. It was it was about a year and a half before there was any any agreement, uh, which is unique in itself. Um, as you know, Yusuf, normal peace processes, you have a crisis, there are talks, there's an agreement and then implementation. I firmly believe that Mozambique was different because we flipped the switch. We flipped the narrative. We did everything according to the timing and we were agile and flexible. Uh, there was no piece of paper, nothing signed. And we went very, very slowly um, and had incremental confidence building steps. And I think I think that by the time we concentrated on what mattered, which is just uh, building trust, no matter how long it took. On our side, I think I think there was a little bit of fear that uh, everything could collapse. But then again, uh, we had faith uh, in the untested. And slowly, slowly, there were there were a few confidence building measures that worked out. And over time, you could see that there was the openness. We had to rebuild trust not only in in the international community, but also in ourselves, between ourselves and between uh, the two leaders. So I think that the the very fact uh, that there was no prescription, that there was nothing that allowed the process to sort of organically grow. And I think I think this is why uh, it's uh, it's different. And it and it actually could be a model for future peace processes. Um, you know, start where you are and and continue moving forward. One other one other reason why I think this is really special is because before we actually signed the peace agreement in 2019, there were a lot of the pro- process had been implemented, and this is unique in itself. I, I don't know um, if there are other peace processes where the implementation uh, of an agreement actually begins uh, before the signing of the actual agreement. And so, in twenty and in twenty eighteen. Um, the country saw the pa- passage of a bill cementing decentralization, changing of the constitution. Uh, shortly after, there was a memorandum um, of understanding of military affairs that outlined the DDR process that we are currently implementing. These were two massive steps that then gave the country confidence uh, and gave the leaders confidence to continue moving forward. And I think, in brief, those are the two elements that set uh, it apart from the other peace processes uh, that that preceded it. You know, one additional factor that really helped sustain uh, the process in uh, Mozambique was similar to the words inclusion and what does it really mean? You know, this process was also nationally owned and in a real sense, not only in words. There was no timeline. It took as long as it needed. We were going through the process with the leaders, with them in the driving seat the whole time, no matter how frustrating it was. And it was our job to insulate them from the rest of the voices and the noises that normally distract other peace processes. And in that context, uh, what, what is really unique about this is that the same team of mediators that started the process continued on. So Mirko Manzoni, who was the Swiss ambassador at the time when we started the the process, uh, then continued on uh, thanks to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who then made him the UN envoy for Mozambique. And I I can't underscore how important continuity is because not only, you know, the question of trust, it can take 
decades to build, moments to lose. Um, and if you really are intent on, on working on a country or helping a country, then by and large, as much as possible, continuity is key. Particularly because, as I said, these the issues that are human beings are complex. The issues discussed are incredibly emotional, um, and people change and grow with time. So it might not be possible in other countries or contexts, but I do believe that not enough importance is being placed on having the same people who have already done a good job or who have already worked on it for them to continue and actually finish what they start. In a world where we're so fast and quick and instant gratification, and you know we're always looking to the next hot, sexy subject, there should be more weight placed uh, on long, sustained uh, processes and conflict prevention in a real sense. Really preventing conflict is about continuous building of trust. Thank you so much for that overview on why the peace process most recently was so unique. And I, I completely understand much of what you've mentioned and I'm sure our audience is really appreciative of the specific details you've you've said. Now one word you mentioned there was trust and to develop trust you need inclusion and when it comes to these peace processes and the wider process of peace building and mediation which you are of course someone so involved in has have expertise from across the continent on what does meaningful inclusion mean when it comes to topics like peace building like mediation and this wider peace process? I'm really glad that uh, that you asked this uh, because the word inclusion means different things to different people and in different contexts. In the peace process, there was inclusion throughout. And actually, it would not have succeeded without inclusion. Uh, at a very basic level, the two leaders needed to bring their constituencies on board. Their constituencies needed to bring their people on board and, and so on and so forth. So Purely by default, there was inclusion. Maybe it wasn't the traditional inclusion um, and the sort of theoretical concepts that normally are spoken about, which is, you know, everyone at the table, uh, we need to have voice ABC heard. I, I don't believe any agreement um, is sustainable without the buy-in of the people of the country. And so there an inclusion is important. Where I differ from what I see elsewhere is imposed inclusion or inclusion for the sake of inclusion. So no one disagrees that voices are important and that for anything to be truly sustainable, truly belonging, it should not only belong to the leaders, but also to the people. But where I think the whole concept of inclusion should be nuanced, and you know, it has been this has been my experience in, in Mozambique, you know, and comparing it to Kenya. Um, where we had a, a completely different sort of inclusion process, but there were similarities. And what it taught me is that there are there is a time and place for everything. Inclusion is not ticking the box. Inclusion is about making sure that all the voices are heard, represented, but also for it to be in a specific format and modality. And I'll explain further. In Kenya, for example, when I worked on the Kenya peace process mediated by Kofi Annan um, representing the African Union in 2007, it was a very classic setup and a very formal sort of mediation. You had the mediators, you had the two sides, and you had you had the talks because the, the issues at the time were between the two sides. It was an electoral conflict. And so how the voices of the country were taken on board were through submissions, through constant briefings, through keeping all the different groups, the women's groups, the religious groups, the civil society, all being extremely important because 
they're the ones who will carry this forward. They're the ones who will carry and live through the peace agreement, live with it. So we had all of that integrated into a formal setting. In Mozambique, as I said, that coming off the back of, of two disappointing processes and experiences, there was, you know, there was no trust to begin with. So how then do you put a, a textbook um, inclusive process in place when there was nothing to start with? And so in itself, uh, looking at the, the process of, of inclusion, yes, in the beginning, it did start with just the two leaders. There was a military affairs commission and a decentralization commission, both represented, you know, two people from both sides and um, members of the international community, international experts, and with a contact group. So that was the formal process that was put in place. I think in terms of just having the country on board, you need something to, to have the country on board. So the process in Mozambique needed time to organically grow for there to be a meeting of minds of the leadership before there was an opening of space elsewhere. But that did not mean that it was not represented. Both leaders kept their constituencies apprised. The civil society, we consulted the civil society, we consulted, you know, the media, but it was it was tightly managed and controlled because our one goal was that we had to protect the space. Without protecting the space and protecting the process and giving the people freedom to be able to work through these incredibly difficult topics. These processes are, are so emotional and they're so, so difficult because the issues that are being discussed touch the heart of the people involved. And you as an outsider can only be grateful. So many times I see or, or I notice that mediators, peace builders, they're in a country to help. But actually, the gratitude should be on that side, not on the side of the country. I mean, when we change our approach to peace building and mediation, uh, whether it's in term, terms of inclusion or peace building, peacemaking, mediation, I think the most important thing is to feel gratitude that the people and the country are letting you in, in their worst moments. They're allowing you to be a part of their history. They're allowing you to be a part and witness very, very difficult emotional moments. So I think inclusion needs to be handled with that same care and grace and not just tossed about purely for ticking a box or to satisfy one component or, or another. I think here in this case, my view on inclusion is that it has to be incremental. It has to be timed well. And inclusion should be a part of it uh, from the beginning, but not forced. Thank you so much there for another really, really fantastic answer with so much breadth and I think the point you made specifically on gratitude being from the individuals that are externally coming in versus gratitude from the individuals who are suffering from the conflict that you're trying to resolve is a really interesting one that I actually haven't really considered before thank you so much and I think when we speak about inclusion especially when it comes to the African continent you know the Africa program who hosts this podcast one of our major themes is African agency the idea that often is misinterpreted as African solutions for African problems. But actually, our hope and our perspective has always been African solutions for world problems. Now, the question that I have for you is, how does peace building and conflict mediation efforts on the African continent differ to other regions of the world? And maybe what can the world learn from African peace building and conflict mediation? Yusuf, I actually love that. I haven't heard that uh, that before. Um, I'm so glad you said it, African solutions for the world's problems. 
we're so interlinked and intertwined. And as we see with what's going on today, you literally cannot separate the world in, in that way. So I really like that sentence. And, and actually, I, I do think that the world can learn a lot, a lot from Africa. You know, that question was, um, I was pondering a little bit on that, on that question because um, I actually don't think Africa is different from the rest of the world. There shouldn't be one way to deal with Africa as opposed to the rest of the world. You know, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and the basic principle of, of respect should guide us. And I think that's what's missing sometimes. Uh, the problem really is more to do with what interference, hidden agenda, geopolitics, these are the factors that differ from Africa to the rest of the world. Um, it's in our handling um, of Africa that makes, that makes that different. Where Africa is different is that sometimes conflicts in Africa are forgotten, one, depending on the gravity or depending on what is going on you know, in the rest of the world. I think sometimes it not, it's not necessarily a priority. This can, be, this can be a blessing and a curse at the same time. Um, in one way, Forgetting conflicts in Africa for conflicts elsewhere gives the space for, as you put it, African solutions, which actually we've seen uh, in Mozambique in the situation of Cabo Delgado, where uh, the country's leadership reached out to another African country and its leadership, um, namely Rwanda, um, and then with Sadak involved. And, you know, over the course of a year or two, there has been significant improvement we could look at it in that way. The other way to look at it is, is that when it comes to Africa, I think it's very important that the world listens to the continent, but actually hears, not only listens, but hears what it's saying. And I go a little bit deeper in that. Most of the time we listen to give an answer or we listen to react. What will change is when we listen with a degree, with a, with a mutual degree of respect. Because there are lessons to be learned from Africa, not only from Mozambique or Kenya, but from around the continent. I mean, there are things happening every day. It's so vibrant. Whether you're talking about, you know, the way conflicts are solved in, in villages or the way elders are respected or the mannerisms and the politeness which guides the culture in Africa. And here I also want to say it's not only the continent itself. It is different, you know, north is very different from west. West is different from east. East is different from south. I mean, I I worked on I'm Kenyan and I worked uh, on on the Kenya peace process and now here in southern Africa. And for me it's totally two different worlds. So that's the other thing. I think appreciation of what goes on the continent as opposed to one size fits all. Thank you so much once again for that really, really detailed answer. And I think you're completely right. I think the exceptionalization of Africa can have negative consequences. But we're hoping that actually the ability for people to learn and actually hear and understand effective policy coming from the continent is something that is so desperately needed in these times, especially with all the geopolitical factors that you alluded to in your answer. But actually, that brings us to an end of this interview. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been really great to hear your thoughts and your experiences. Thank you so much, Yusuf. And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa Aware. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe to us on the platform you're listening to us on and do leave a review as it will allow others to find the podcast easier. I hope you've enjoyed listening. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.